causes a person to repent? What inspires someone with a hard heart and a stubborn resolve to do a complete 180, to turn around and come home? We're glad you set aside time to be with us on this New Year's Eve edition of Insight for Living. During the next half hour, you'll hear Chuck Swindoll conclude a compelling message introduced before the Christmas holiday. Whether it's a son or daughter, perhaps a grandchild, maybe your husband or wife, we all know the pain of watching someone we love defy God and walk away. So what makes a rebel return? Let's find out. Those who go and deal with an individual who is in wrong and behaving wrongfully so that this individual is confronted with the wrongness of his actions, that person who goes is to have a spirit of gentleness. And that individual is to have one goal in mind, restoration. Not embarrassment, not an exaggerated series of offenses that are revealed to this person, but simply the truth where the person is brought face to face with wrong and hopefully will turn in his repentance and come back to God. The goal is to bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. Now, when I have you turn to 2 Samuel 11, if you're with it in your scripture reading, you know that uh, a chill is about to go up your back. This is King David exposed. Here is the notorious uh, affair with Bathsheba. The tragic part of it is that it has happened to a king who is a high-profile man of God. He is a, in terms of today, a Christian celebrity. He is the best-known name in the nation. And he has willfully, though hypocritically, defected. Uh, there, is an, there is an illegitimate child in her womb. There is now a dead husband that David had murdered. There is a long, strewn pathway of a, the, the litter of hypocrisy. And the buzzword in the courtroom of David is adultery. They know the king is living in it. They know Bathsheba. They know David they know the scoop, but he won't face it. But most important, the last sentence of chapter 11 stands out as a commentary, in my mind, of God's statement. God's opinion is the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. Don't give me any of the rationalization, it is evil. So what does God do? Verse 1, chapter 12. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David. You know the rest. With penetrating, uncompromising, sword-like words, Nathan faced David with a lovely analogy of a man who had plenty. He had plenty. But he reached over and he stole the little ewe lamb that belonged to another and took it unto himself. And while David is about to speak out in self-righteous indignation saying, Send me that man and we'll make things right. Nathan looks straight into his eyes. Verse 7. And says, You are the man. 
David is stunned. That brief Hebrew sentence drove its way into David's brain. You are the man. David's response, verse 13, very brief, I've sinned against Adonai. I've sinned. Would that all men and women who are confronted would be that easy to deal with. But they're not. So turn to Ecclesiastes 12. That brings us to subject number two. Solomon, who followed in his father's train, by the way. Solomon is the writer, and he has for 10, 11 chapters been walking his own way, remember? See the way chapter 12 begins? Verse 1, remember your creator in the days of your youth. Verse 6, remember him, O reader. Remember him before before the uh, silver cord is broken and the golden bowl is crushed. Remember him before you breathe your last, before the stroke, before the heart attack. We've looked at those verses before. Verse 13, in conclusion, let me tell you what's the end of all of this stuff. In conclusion, when all has been heard, you who are trying to find satisfaction in the sheer boredom of that empty lifestyle, fear God, keep his commandments. That applies to every person. Because God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it's good or evil. That's a wrap-up. You know what turns Solomon around? I'll say it again. The sheer boredom and the dreadful emptiness of the world system. Now, those of us on the other side don't often believe that. We often think, man, now that might be worth an excursion. I mean, it might be really exciting. Before you're thus tempted, listen to the words of a man in our church named Dick, who used to work at a bank. A man I'll call George used to work at my bank. George had recently been divorced and was now establishing himself as the most eligible bachelor about town. Each day, the bank tellers excitedly gossiped about his latest word, and the male officers crowded around him to lunch, uh, crowded around him at, at lunch to hear about his most recent sexual escapade. Months went by, and George seemed to be living in hysterically marvelous, enviable life. He had taken up residence in a swinging singles apartment at the beach and boasted about having sex every night and twice on Sunday with gorgeous, glorious girls. As one married banker marveled, George really has it made. But one afternoon, George came to my desk and haltingly said, uh, Dick, could I talk to you about something? You know, Dick, I've really got it made. I'm free from the attachments of marriage. I got this great pad at the beach, and, and I've got one gal after another, night after night. I come and go as I please, and I do my own thing. But something's really bothering me, and I can't figure it out. Every morning as I get dressed for work, I look into the mirror and I think, what was last night's little game all about anyway? Sure, the girl was good-looking. Uh, she was good in bed, and she left this morning without bugging me, but is that all there is to life? I ask myself, uh, if this lifestyle is whatever God thinks he wants, 
Why am I so depressed? Why do I feel a cold nothingness all the time? Remember that. A cold nothingness. He stopped, leaned closer, and quietly continued. I know the guys here think it would be fantastic to have this kind of liberated freedom, but honestly, Dick, I hate this life. He sat back, paused for a few seconds, and then wistfully added, You know what I'd really like? I'd like to go home tonight, smell dinner cooking, hug my wife hello, and spend the evening telling her and showing her how much I love her. I'd like to go to bed with her and not have to prove my virility, not have to perform above the call of duty, but just give her my love and go to sleep knowing she'd be there in the morning. That kind of emptiness. That's what'll turn him around. Sometime that won't do it either, however. And so it takes a God-appointed tragedy. Turn to Jonah. You knew I couldn't preach on this entire subject without addressing Jonah, our dear friend in the Minor Prophets with a major message, Jonah. It's not a story about a fish. It's not a... I am just amazed at the, the ignorant kind of feelings people have about the book of Jonah. It's a story about God. It's a story about God's mission program. Seemed as though he had his hands full getting a man to one place. And the fish is incidental. I don't think Jonah would have thought that at a particular time in his life, but it's incidental to the God of the book because God plays for keeps. He says to his prophet, verse 2, Arise, go to Nineveh, and he doesn't stutter. He says it's a great city. And cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Jonah, take the message, go to Nineveh, and tell the Gentiles about the Jehovah of the Jews. Tell them about my love. Tell them about my plan. Tell them about my plan to destroy this earth. Tell them my arrangement. You go to Nineveh. Verse 3, Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish. Right. You're supposed to laugh because it's absolutely ludicrous. It's like God saying to you, go to Berlin and you go to Honolulu. You don't get to Berlin by going to Honolulu unless you plan a long trip around. And I'm sure Jonah did a lot of rationalizing. He must have thought, great, verse 3, here's a ship. Here's a ship going to Tarshish. And so Jonah went down to Joppa, found the ship, going to Tarshish, paid the fare, crawled in, and went to sleep. Don't think all rebels are miserable all the time. Some of them can sleep like a log in the most treacherous situations. But see, that's when God steps in. This is a story about God. Look at verse 4. The Lord hurled a great wind on the sea. And so the men who were on the ship are trying to keep afloat. There's only one guy sound asleep, and he's the cause of it all. And finally the captain worms his way down in the hold and shakes this 
crazy guy awake and says, what is this? The lot's fallen on you. And Jonah says to them, I'm a prophet of God and uh, I'm running away. And even these Gentile sailors know their way around. They've called on their gods and nothing would happen. And verse 8, tell us now on whose account this calamity has struck. Here's a God-appointed calamity. Jonas is guilty. I'm responsible. Verse 10, the men became extremely frightened and they said, how could you? Look at that. They've got greater respect for his God than Jonah does. You'll shock the people in the world system if you stand against your God. How could you do such a thing? How could you talk about commitment so strong on Sunday and live like the devil on Wednesday afternoon? How could you do that? Explain that to me. That's not commitment to me. How come you mouth all that junk about religion and, and you live like this? See, that doesn't square with the Gentile mind. He says, uh, I was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. Says that in verse 3. Says that in verse 10. And they said to him, what should we do to you that the sea may become calm? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. One, two, three. Quote. And the sea is as slick as glass. And there's one prophet about to make an amphibious landing in Nineveh. Sometime it takes a calamity. Now this won't be funny. Sometime it takes the loss of a child. Yes, it does. An innocent, precious life taken to be with the Lord. Sometimes it takes the loss of a mate. Sometimes it takes the loss of a job, bankruptcy. Sometimes it takes a terminal illness or a terminal illness in one that means the most in all the world to you. But God won't quit. Francis Thompson wrote a piece now out of print called the hound of heaven. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind and in the mist of tears I hid from him and under running laughter I sped and shot down titanic glooms of chasmed fears from those strong feet that followed. Deliberate speed, majestic instancy, they beat, and a voice that more instant than the feet said, All things betray thee who betrayest me. Wow. God sets the hounds of heaven after his people. Believe it. He scars us and he brutalizes us until he brings us into submission because he does not live comfortably with a rebel. Come home. Come back. This isn't easy preaching. This isn't my own choice. This is right preaching, though. 
Sometimes it takes a prophet to confront. Sometimes it takes the agonizing, sheer emptiness of a lifestyle that never comes up right side up. Sometimes it takes a calamity appointed by God. I think when Jonah hit the streets of Nineveh, he was white as a sheet. I think the acid from that, from that fish bleached his body white. I think he looked like a freak. God marked his man. Luke chapter 15 is the uh, fourth glimpse. Quickly now. Here is, here is our Savior talking about a boy we've all talked about. Maybe you've lived with one like him. The younger son decides he doesn't want the home and all that goes with it. He's tired of all that old-fashioned stuff. He doesn't need such stringent rules and, and rigid requirements. He, he wants his own thing, and so his daddy gives him his wealth, and the boy hits the road and lives it up until the money runs out and friends walk away, and he winds up in a pigsty with nothing but his memory. And the boy, at the end of his rope, verse 14, closes with Luke 15, 14. He began to be in need, and he had never known that before. He went and attached himself to one of the citizens of the country, and he sent him into his field to feed swine. And he was longing to fill his stomach with the filth that the swines ate. Just anything to get me through the night. And then the scripture says, no one was giving anything to him. That is depression. And the boy, verse 17, comes to his senses. You know what that says? That means he was out of his senses ahead of time. That means the whole pathway that led from home to the swine was insanity. Just insanity. Dad couldn't reason with him. Friends got to where they couldn't talk to him. Finally, God couldn't reach him. And he was in this insane drive of self-pursuit, like Nebuchadnezzar, strutting around the kingdom, talking about all the great things he had built. And God struck him into insanity, and he lived in the field like a beast. Read it for yourself. You won't believe it. Like an animal in the field. This boy is insane, and he comes to his senses, and he realizes everything he wanted was back home. I wish I had time to read Peter Marshall here. He does a great job of describing what the boy misses. It's Thanksgiving, and he can see his father at the head of the table carving the turkey. He can taste the watermelon rind preserves and the homemade rolls. Uh, he can see the nostalgic look in his father's eyes as he surveys the family he loves, and there's a chair empty. You know what's drawing the boy back? The love of a father. The love of a home. Never once does it say, I will arise and go back to my house. There's nothing in a house to draw someone back to it. It's people. Look at what he says. How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread to eat, and I'm dying with hunger? 
I mean, I may be running fast, but I'm not stupid. Look at what I'm doing with my life. I will get up and go to my father. And I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Let me just be one of the hired men. And he got up, verse 20, and he came to his father. The greatest scenes in all of scripture. There's a wayward lad falling into the arms of a waiting dad. And there are tears. And there's forgiveness. And there's a fatted calf. And the angels of heaven rejoice. Sometimes it takes a Nathan to say you're wrong. Other times the sheer boredom of your empty world is enough to bring you back to your senses. Occasionally a horrible, divinely appointed calamity from a sovereign God who won't let his servant run wild any longer. And occasionally the, the love and acceptance of a home that won't change its standards in order for you to come back. You know what I see here? Now listen carefully. I see God in three frames. I see God as a jealous groom who won't let his bride flirt in the street. I then see God as a sovereign Lord who won't let his servant run wild. And finally, I see God as a compassionate father who takes his boy into his arms. And he's the same today. Let's bow together. You know what it takes to come back home. And some of you have been running long enough to know that there's nothing more in front of you except the same miserable emptiness you've encountered. Come on home. Now. Lord God, in the name of Christ, who is more powerful than any voice on this earth, I ask you to bring the sinner to his knees or her knees, that you'd cause there to be such a repentant spirit that the life is remarkably and miraculously changed, that you would give us the courage to confront where you lead us to do sort of that sort of thing, the patience to wait where it seems that that is the only other alternative, the grace to accept a calamity, even if it strikes us or someone we love. The forgiveness to accept a wayward boy back home. We bow before you, sovereign Lord, jealous groom, loving father, and we run no longer. We come in Jesus' name. Amen. What makes a rebel return? That's the title of today's message on Insight for Living. You can find today's message online when you go to insightworld.org. We'll hear an important closing comment from Chuck Swindoll in just a moment. As you heard Chuck speak today, Perhaps you're thinking about someone you love, wondering how to deal with his or her rebellious spirit. For the prodigal and those who love them, sometimes questions linger. 
doubts, or painful memories? Well, our ministry team in Canada put together a helpful book on this topic based on the teaching of Chuck Swindoll, addressing 10 compelling issues, anger, worry, conflict, guilt, and more. The book is called Help Me Understand How the Bible Speaks to My Pain. And when you give a special end-of-the-year gift, you're invited to request a copy. When a rebel walks away from the Christian faith, sometimes it's because he's concluded the Bible is out of touch, irrelevant. Maybe he's become cynical about life because he's been hurt by someone he once trusted. Well, this book provides authentic biblical answers. It's called Help Me Understand. And this is our very last day to make this special offer. If you're listening in the United States, call 1-800-772-8888 or online go to insight.org. I'll repeat our contact information in just a moment. First, though, this urgent reminder from Chuck. Thank you, Dave. Well, we've finally come down to the wire, haven't we? In less than 24 hours, we'll be stepping into the brand new year of 2014. We'll have to get used to saying that, won't we? 2014. As you celebrate New Year's Eve with family and friends, please make sure that you take a couple of minutes to connect with Insight for Living. Even on this holiday, we've made arrangements to have folks on hand to receive your phone call. It's so important that we hear from you today. You can also go online or you could drop your check in the mail. Thanks so much, my friend. On behalf of my wife, Cynthia, and the entire family of friends at Insight for Living who serve you throughout the year, we're praying for God's richest blessings in the new year ahead. And here's how you respond to Chuck Swindoll with your generous year-end donation. Call right now. If you're listening in the United States, the number is 1-800-772-8888. Online, go to insight.org. And when you give a donation today, We'll say thank you by providing the book, Help Me Understand. You can sample the book online at insight.org. Or if you're listening in the United States, call right now, 1-800-772-8888. And by the way, as you reflect on today's message from Chuck, you'll want to join the conversation online. Take some time to look at insight.org promises. I'm Dave Spiker, inviting you to join us again on New Year's Day to hear another message from Chuck Swindoll on Insight for Living. The preceding message, What Makes a Rebel Return, was copyrighted in 1984 and the sound recording was copyrighted in 2013 by Charles R. Swindoll, Inc. All rights are reserved worldwide.